Hey, welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. I'm Rob Chartrand, the lead pastor of the church. We're a church that's for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and are passionate about helping people find their way back to God. Hey, if you're new, I'll have a bit to say at the end of the podcast, but in the meantime, let's listen to this Sunday's message. Well, hey, good morning, everyone. And uh, good morning to those who are watching online on our live stream channel. We're so glad you guys are here this morning. And uh, we are continuing a series that we've been doing for a couple weeks now, and the series is called No Fool. And uh, we've been discovering how to chase down wisdom and how to leave folly far behind. And so uh, as part of, the, part of this series, we've been looking at the fools of Proverbs. And, you know, as you read through Proverbs, there's these characters who seem to reoccur again and again and again. Uh, but the problem is they're kind of smattered and splattered all across Proverbs. And so what we've been doing is we've been taking composite sketches of these characters. We've been bringing all those verses together to get a bit of a picture of what these people are like. And we're going to learn a lot from them. Because how many of you know that a wise person will learn from their own mistakes, but an even wiser person will learn from the mistakes of others. And those of you who are loving uh, younger siblings can say amen to that. Um, the character we're going to be looking at today is known as the scoffer. And that's the word that is used in the version that I'm going to be reading from, which is the ESV. Some of you might be reading from uh, different translations, and so the word might come up as the scorner or as the mocker. Um, so the thing about the scoffer is that he is often referred to as the king of all the fools. So as you read through Proverbs, there are, there are different degrees of the fool. Uh, the simple is probably the starting point, but the scoffer is like the far end of the spectrum. He is the worst kind of fool. So what I want to do today is I want to jump right into it uh, today, and I want to look at a portrait of the, of the scoffer, and then I want to talk about the problem with the scoffer, and then I'm hoping that we can part ways from the scoffer. I'm going to talk about how we can do that. So, so let's just jump in and talk about the portrait uh, of the scoffer. Um, who is the scoffer? Well, you know, this is a term that we don't often use much in our modern uh, vernacular, vocabulary, uh, but a scoffer is essentially a person who kind of shows contempt for other people. Uh, this usually manifests itself in mocking or insults or ridicule. Uh, they tend to have like a heightened sense of superiority when they talk about other people or when they talk to other people. And they generally, generally disdain people who think differently than they do. Now, Proverbs, uh, of course, that's the general meaning of, of the term, but Proverbs actually gives us some descriptions of the scoffer. So I just want to look at three of them this morning uh, really quickly. Uh, what does Proverbs teach us that the scoffer actually does? Number one is the scoffer stirs things up, okay? So the, the scoffer enjoys creating conflict. Here's what Proverbs 22 verse 10 says. It says, <clears throat> drive out a scoffer and strife will go out and quarreling and abuse will cease. So, so the scoffer is a fecal disturber. Okay? His goal is to create strife and not harmony. Now, there are some people who create controversy just by the nature of who they are. Not for bad reasons, not that they're trying to create controversy. They just are controversial type people. Like Jesus, for example. Jesus was a controversial figure. And Jesus, wherever he went, seemed to stir up trouble. But that wasn't his aim. That wasn't his purpose. He wasn't living to create trouble with other people. Rather, he was coming to bring what? To bring grace and to bring truth. So he wasn't kicking the proverbial hornet's nest just to see people get stung. The scoffer, however, is different. He is a deliberate troublemaker, and in fact, he enjoys it. Here's what, here's what Proverbs 1.22 says. This is how long 
Oh, simple ones, will you love being simple? And how long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? So, so there's something about the nature of the scoffer that they delight in creating controversy. So they like using their wit and their cunning to tear others or, or their beliefs down, right? He likes the, the rush of conflict. He likes the feeling that comes with being argumentative. So he's a deliberate troublemaker. Here's a second uh, description is he hates correction. So often when you, when you will confront a scoffer, it kind of backfires on you. They're stubborn, they're resistant, you know, they don't like hearing that they're wrong. Uh, here's what Proverbs 13.1 says about him. It says, a wise son hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. Now, none of us likes hearing that we're wrong, do we? I mean, seriously, do we like people coming to tell us everything we've done wrong or that our belief systems are a little, little bit off kilter? Um, so we have this natural impulse within each and every one of us to defend ourselves, right? We, we, and oftentimes we try to avoid controversy, right? We don't like to dive into controversy or confrontation. But the scoffer takes that impulse to the next level, all right? So she cannot be wrong. I mean, to admit that she is wrong would be to admit weakness or, or to maybe give somebody else the upper hand. So she's unwilling to admit mistakes. I mean, even if she's clearly in the wrong, even if everybody says that she's in the wrong, she just is unwilling to admit it, that she is wrong. So some of you are snickering because you probably know somebody like this. You know exactly who I'm talking about. And uh, now Proverbs 15, 20 adds to this. Here's what it says. It says, a scoffer does not like to be reproved he will not go to the wise. So not only will the scoffer avoid correction, the scoffer will avoid the kinds of people who are going to sharpen him. They avoid the kind of people who are actually going to bring about correction. So if you go to the wise, here's the thing. If you, you hang out with wise people, you often have to face up to your own flaws, right? If you hang out with the wise, you might have to admit that maybe I don't know everything. Maybe I don't have it all together. So you might have to change your mind. You might have to change your attitude. This impulse that's within the scoffer is why so many people are unwilling to go to counseling, even when they clearly need it. This impulse is also why so many men are willing to ask for directions. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Had to throw you under the bus. I just couldn't yeah, resist. And so what does a scoffer do? The scoffer oftentimes will surround him or herself with people who will not challenge them. They create their own echo chamber, their own relational algorithm, right? Keeping the wise out, keeping the fools in, keeping the people who agree with them, as you know, it says in the New Testament, surrounding themselves with people whose itching ears you know, are in agreement with them. So they want to ensure that the people around them are supporting them in their folly. And Proverbs gives us really clear directions about confronting a scoffer. Here's what it says. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself, uh, gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. You know, and I think most of us have somebody in our lives who kind of fits this description, or, or somebody maybe at some point who has fit this description. And you almost feel like you have to wear Kevlar, if you're going to have a conversation with them. You, you, you would rather play fetch with a rabid dog than disagree with a scoffer. And I think most of us can, can, can imagine somebody like that in our lives. So here's a, here's a third description of the scoffer. The scoffer destroys community. It destroys community. So as the scoffer kind of stirs things up, 
he starts to bring about destruction, okay? He, has a, he or she has an emotional wake in their lives, like a boat, that they just kind of leave behind them. So Proverbs chapter 29, verse 8 says, Scoffers set a city aflame. Imagine that. But the wise turn away wrath. So there's something about the scoffer's behavior that is divisive. He's more interested in finding the flaws, more interested in winning the argument, more, more interested in showing how right he is. Uh, he can be convincing, it says in other Proverbs, to the simple-minded. Uh, he also tends to polarize communities uh, with his words. He creates wrath. And so he's tearing things down more than he's building things up. And he might even have a good, honest reason to do it. He might even be wanting to bring about truth and be a champion for truth. But at the end of the day, the way he's going about doing it is tearing things down rather than building them up. Uh, it brings to mind what James chapter 3 says. Here's James 3 and verse 5. It says, So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire. A world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. See, the thing about words is, is words, words are powerful. Words ignite. And they can be used for tremendous good. They can also be used for terrible evil. And the tongue of the scoffer burns community to ashes, is what it's saying. Now, this morning, let me get really, 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 really practical and uh, do a bit of a sidebar and talk about something that uh, I think is affecting all of us and something we're all very involved in. How many of you know that there are scoffers on social media? You know, and I think one of the most clearest examples of the scoffer on social media is what is known as the internet troll. The internet troll. Uh, here's Wikipedia's definition of, a, of an internet troll. In internet slang, a troll is a person who starts quarrels or upsets people on the internet to distract and sow discord by posting inflammatory and digressive, extraneous, or off-topic messages in an online community with the intent of provoking readers into displaying emotional responses and normalizing tangential discussion, whether for the troll's amusement or a specific gain. Does this at all sound familiar this morning? Isn't that interesting? Um, or to put it simply in trolls' language, uh, troll make internet mad, troll like anger, troll want people as miserable as troll, okay? That's what the troll's all about. Now, there are other potential scoffers online. There are internet bullies, right? Um, I think even internet debaters kind of get close to that category. The, the debater isn't necessarily there to stir the pot, but more just to argue. Um, which I always find fascinating because I don't know a single person who's ever had their mind convinced by watching or reading an argument on social media. I don't know anybody who has. Because most people who engage in those types of arguments aren't there to learn. Most of the people who engage in those arguments are there to win. And you're not going to lose when everybody else is listening or watching, right? And besides, if you really want to change somebody else's mind, this is puzzling to me. If you really want to change somebody's mind, why do it online? where everybody else is watching. I mean, what does that really say about you? Why are you doing it in front of everybody else? And why not take it offline? Or why not say, hey, bro, let's go for coffee. I'd really like to hear what you have to say. And let's talk about it. Let's dialogue. It just blows my mind about internet debating. Anyway, I digress. I digress. Um, I recently read a book by a man named Jaron Lanier. 
And the book is called 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media Accounts Right Now. Fascinating book. Brilliant book. And you wonder, who is Jaron Lanier, and why, why should we listen to him? Well, Jaron Lanier if, uh, is uh, com- a computer philosophy writer. He was nominated as one of Time's 100 Most Influential People. He is one of the guys who actually helped design the internet, and he's one of the founding fathers of virtual reality. And so his book has 10 chapters. The third chapter, uh, based on his 10 arguments, the third chapter and the third argument in the book is, social media is making you into a butt. And he doesn't use the word but, okay? This is his argument. And he argues that each and every one of us, all of us, have this inner troll that's inside of us. Uh, It's fascinating as you read it. It's almost like, well, is he talking about the sinful nature here? But he says every one of us has an internet troll. It's a flaw of the human condition. And and in most social situations, face-to-face situations, when we talk with people, when our inner troll starts to come out, usually we correct it right? Other people will correct it or will correct and will go, oh yeah, this is really uncomfortable. But there is something about social media, especially when you bring people together in these conversations where the inner troll is given permission that they never had before. And as a result, people behave in ways on social media that they would never ever behave in a face-to-face conversation. It literally brings out the worst in the people. And here's what he says. He says, in the meantime, there is something you can do personally. If when you participate in online platforms, you notice a nasty thing inside yourself, an insecurity, a sense of low self-esteem, a yearning to lash out, to swat someone down, then leave that platform. Simple. It's one of his arguments for getting off social media. No, I'm not, you know, I'm on social media. I get that, right? But I read the book and I'm like, ah, yeah, in so many ways, he is so, so right about what it's doing to us. Let me ask you a question this morning. Is your online use bringing out the best in you, or is it bringing out the worst in you? Does it give your inner troll permission to rise up? Something to to think about today. Okay, so we've talked about the portrait. Let's uh, talk about the problem. Let's talk about the scoffer's root problem. What is the fuel that that, uh, propels a scoffer to act the way he does? Well, Proverbs identifies the root problem as pride. Proverbs 21, verse 24. Here's what it says. Scoffer is the name of the arrogant, haughty man who acts with arrogant pride. Well, what is pride? You know, pride is not necessarily a bad thing. As a matter of fact, there's good pride and there's bad pride. Uh, Good pride is just a healthy and reasonable respect for yourself and respect for other people. So, for example, Paul actually told the Corinthians in in his letter to the Corinthians, he says, I'm proud of you guys. I'm proud of you for what you've been doing, right? I tell my children, I tell my daughters all the time, I'm proud of you. I'm proud of what you're, who you're becoming and the things that you're doing. I'm proud of you. So that's good pride. But then there's a bad pride. Bad pride comes with an inflated sense of self. Okay, it's, it's self-esteem gone wild. One, one reference book uh, I read called it this. It says, it's an inordinate love of one's own excellence. It's a hard attitude, a superiority. So you literally step on your own self-made platform and you exalt yourself above all other people. And most of it is, is it's rooted in self-dependence. This self-dependence that's so fierce that it says, you know, I don't need other people and I ultimately don't need God. It reminds me of, uh, of what Don King, the shameless boxing promoter, once said. He says, I never cease to amaze my own self. I say that humbly. <laughs> 
Now, the thing about pride is pride cannot stay inside the human heart for very long. Pride eventually leads to boasting or to posturing or cutting other people down. Uh, so somehow trying to make other people's light grow dim so that my light seems to glow all the brighter. And that's what arrogance is. Arrogance is pride gone public. Pride is more internal, but arrogance is more external. And both of them go hand in hand with the scoffer. Now, if anything is clear from Scripture, if anything is clear from Scripture, it is this, is that God opposes the proud. It is anathema to the very nature of who God is. Proverbs 4, verse 6 to 7 says, But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So when we are full of pride, we are playing on the opposing team from God. Note that it says that it doesn't say God ignores the proud. It says that God opposes the proud. See, the thing about the proud person is the proud person doesn't think that they need God. They're blinded to their own weakness, their spiritual poverty. So when we push God off the throne of our lives, there leaves a vacancy. And eventually somebody has to jump on the throne of our lives and be in control. And oftentimes that person who jumps on the throne is ourselves. And that's what happens with pride. So God will oppose any other gods in our lives, including ourselves. It makes me think of the Johnny Cash song. You know, you can run on for a long time, but sooner or later, God will cut you down. God's opposition in our lives, however, isn't because he's trying to ruin our lives, isn't because he's, you know, he, he, he's uh, tried to tear us down, but ultimately, God is doing it as an act of grace. Because here's the thing, is, is that pride isn't good for us. Pride wrecks us. It destroys community and the people around us. And God wants to root it out of our lives for our own good. Just like a loving parent wants the best in their kids and will do things in their kids' lives to ensure that they turn out to be good, loving, mature adults. In the same way, God, our loving Heavenly Father, is for us. And so he will root pride out of our lives as an act of grace because he knows that pride ultimately is going to destroy us. So he graciously opposes us for our good and for his glory. So Proverbs sixteen eighteen makes this very clear. It says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So let me think about this question this morning. What was it that sank the Titanic? Yeah, it was an iceberg, yeah, obviously, um, uh, if you know the story of the Titanic. But what really sank the Titanic, what drove it into that iceberg was actually pride. Um, the captain of the Titanic on its maiden voyage was a man named Edward John Smith. About a year prior to, uh, to being the captain of the Titanic, he was the captain of another ship. That ship was known as the Olympic. And uh, at, at one point when he was out uh, being the captain of the Olympic, uh, he, he actually drove it into another battleship by accident. Okay. And so when he drove it into the other battleship, it was, it was taken on a lot of water. It almost sank. And, and, as, and as a result of that, um, kind of his reputation as a captain began to get into question. So he took it back to port. They had it fixed. They had it repaired. But not long after, he was out sailing it again, and he drew, drove it over the wreck of another ship. So when he drove it over the wreck of the other ship, he lost the propeller on the Olympic again, and then they had to take it back to port and repair it again. So, I mean, his, his reputation was being challenged even more as a captain, whether or not he was uh, suitable to be it. And then for some strange reason, he was appointed to be the captain of the Titanic on her maiden voyage. And what was clear when he became the captain of the Titanic was that he had something to prove. His goal with the Titanic was to get it across the ocean ahead of schedule, 
And to prove to everybody he wasn't a bad captain, but he was, in fact, a superior captain. So he was the one who decided the speed, and he was the one who decided where to navigate. That was his call at the end of the day. And policy clearly dictated moderate speed and maximum comfort. But he treated his new ship like it was a sports car. I mean, the maximum speed for the Titanic was 24 knots. He drove it at 22 knots across the ocean, which was, I mean, it was really, really fast, 22 knots, okay? And then not only that, is he actually drove it on a course where he knew that there were going to be icebergs. He was warned that there were going to be icebergs in this part of, the, uh, part of the ocean, but he drove it right through because it was the shortest way to get to his destination so that he could arrive early. And then on the night the Titanic sank, he left his third captain in charge, you know, a couple tiers down from him, he went downstairs to a dinner party, and he boasted to all of the dinner guests about how this ship was essentially unsinkable. And of course, we hear this famous quote, we don't know if he ever said it, but not even God himself could sink this ship. Of course, we know all, all know the story is that about midnight of that same night, the Titanic rammed into an iceberg, it, it crushed five of its airtight compartments, and it sank within two hours. And he, the captain, along with 15 other passengers, went down to a watery grave. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride has this potential of shipwrecking our lives. Proverbs actually kind of spells this out for us when it comes to the scoffer. Uh, let, let me look at a couple of verses. Uh, Proverbs 19.29. Condemnation is ready for scoffers, and beating for the backs of fools. Here's another one, a great one. The devising of folly is sin, and the scoffer is an abomination to mankind. An abomination to mankind. I mean, you start to get this feeling that scoffing is a tad bit unfavorable in God's moral universe, right? And, and that's an understatement. I mean, I don't think anybody wants to be called an abomination to mankind, do you? I mean, what if that was your job title? What do you do for that? Oh, abomination to mankind, you know? You go, to, you go to your kids' schools, right? And, and it's like bring your parent to school day, you know, work day. And it's like, hi, I'm Jimmy. My dad's a plumber, right? And it's, oh, I'm Sally. My mom's a doctor. I'm Toby. My dad's an abomination to mankind, right? I mean, <laughs> nobody wants that job title. You don't want that epitaph on your grave, right? Here lies Rob, an abomination to mankind. So scoffing, you, you just get this sense and this feeling that God's really in opposition to this kind of an attitude. And it's not in the way of wisdom. And it's way far out of sync with God's moral order for the universe and what he wants for us as his people. All right, so here's the parting. How do we part ways with the scoffer? I mean, how do you avoid becoming one? And this is important. You know, and you know why this is important? Because I think most of us would agree that there is an inner troll inside each and every one of us. I think we all have wrestled with pride to some degree. Now, it might not manifest itself as arrogance, it might not manifest itself as, as, as scoffing, but sometimes it peeks its head out from under the bridge, this little troll, and it tries to wreak havoc in our lives. It might be in your workplace when you're talking about the boss or other employees to other fellow employees. It might show up in your political discussions with other people. It might show up in how you use the internet and in your social media. It might be show up in how we talk to our kids or how we talk to our spouse. It could show up um, after church, after you dissect every part of the service as you have Christian chicken together. 
Not us, though. I mean, we would never do that, right? We would never dissect um, the service. But we all wrestle with our inner troll. So if pride is the root of the scoffer's problem, what is the antidote? The antidote is humility. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Proverbs 2.34 says, Towards the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. So I want to just spend a little bit of time talking about what humility looks like. If that's the antidote. Because I think it's pretty important. What does humility look like? Well, three things. First of all, it looks like the fear of the Lord. And we're going back to this again. We'll go back to this again probably every week as we start, uh, walk through Proverbs. Humility is linked to the fear of the Lord with unbreakable chains. Look at this verse, Proverbs 15, 33. The fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom, and humility comes before honor. Humility actually begins with the fear of the Lord. And of course, that's the theme of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 1 uh, begins with the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What's the foundation of wisdom? What's the beginning of the path to wisdom? It's the fear of the Lord. If you want to get on the path of wisdom, to, to align yourself with God's moral order in the universe, the only way to do that is beginning with the fear of the Lord. It's that important. So what is the fear of the Lord? The fear of the Lord is essentially having a healthy sense of reverence and awe for who God is. It's not living in terror. You know, it's not always looking over your shoulder, oh my goodness, God is coming. But it's a healthy sense of reverence and awe for who God is. And the result of that, if you have the fear of the Lord, the result of the fear of the Lord is humility. Humility grows when you understand that there is a million mile difference between you and God. When you understand that there is a God and it is not you. So when you understand how great and good and powerful and brilliant God is, what happens? You humble yourself. You take a knee. You bow your heart. You bow down. You embrace your littleness and you embrace your powerlessness. You know, there's this famous story that Jesus told of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18. And of course, we know the Pharisee. Who was the Pharisee? Who was among the religious elite in Judea, right? He was a, a, a tremendous keeper of the law. He knew all of the scriptures by heart from a very young age. But the tax collector, he was among the despised. I mean, he was an extortionist. He was a sellout to his country. And so people didn't like that. They called him a sinner. They would walk on the other side of the street. That's who the tax collector was. And Luke 18 says that the Pharisee and a tax collector went up to the temple to pray together. They went up to the temple and they prayed together. And it says the Pharisee, he prayed by himself. And he said, God, thanks. Thanks so much that I'm not like these other wicked people, like this tax collector. And then it says that the tax collector, he couldn't even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast. And he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And what is the verdict of what Jesus said? about that story. Here's the verdict. He says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. The Pharisee, of course, he exalted himself, right? He had a false sense of security in his own goodness. He relied on rule keeping, but he actually ignored his own inner brokenness. So he stood on a platform of his own devising and he looked down his nose at the tax collector. But the tax collector stood on nothing. He stood on nothing but the mercy of God. He truly feared God. And it was his humility at the end of the day, his humility that brought him towards God. So it's humility, uh, the fear of the Lord, that is the beginning of humility in our lives. Uh, humility looks like the fear of the Lord, but it also looks like this. It looks like embracing appropriate smallness. Once we walk in humility with God, 
we can then walk in humility with other people. See, when God becomes your ultimate source of worth and approval and satisfaction, and when you truly understand your appropriate position in light of God, okay, when you understand that, when you see yourself from God's perspective, not from your own false perspective, then there's no need to posture. There's no need to pretend. There's no need to find favor from people. We can simply accept, accept with gladness our appropriate smallness and be content with that. Let's look at what Paul says in Romans uh, chapter 12, verse 3. He says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Sound familiar, right? But to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. What I find is, is, is really difficult to be a scoffer when I look at myself with sober judgment. What is sober judgment? Sober judgment is essentially having God's perspective of who I am. So if I'm truly honest about my weaknesses, if I'm truly honest about my limitations, I accept that there is no room for pride in my life. There is no room for boasting in my life. It's, so how do we walk with humility then? How do we walk? I, 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 I read a great line recently. It says this, humility comes from fasting from self and feasting on Christ. Humility comes from fasting from self and feasting on Christ. See, the thing of it is, when we are full of pride, most often times we are preoccupied with ourselves. But when we are walking with humility, we're actually other-centered as opposed to self-centered. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He says, true humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. So humility, walking with humility with other people in community, it begins with fasting on yourself. So it means stop fixating on yourself and start focusing on other people. We see this spelled out in the New Testament, Paul's letter to the Philippians. Here's what he says, Philippians chapter 2. So he says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And then he says this, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility... Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So here's the thing. Is, is you, to walk in humility, you've got to get your eyes off yourself. And you've got to get your eyes on other people. The more, the, if you continue to keep your eyes on yourself all the time, what's going to grow in you? Is it humility or pride? Well, pride. Pride's going to grow in you. But if you're going to walk in humility, you have to focus your eyes on other people. But here's the thing. If you only fast on yourself and you do not feast on Christ, you will eventually starve your spirit. Or the service that you give to other people will become yet another way for you to build a platform. So you cannot simply fast on yourself. You must feast on Christ. Notice the text and where humility comes from. Paul begins by saying, it comes from encouragement in Christ, comfort in his love, walking with his spirit. Paul is saying that because we have all these things, or since we have all these things, we can therefore begin to walk in humility with other people. We can therefore start being other-centered rather than self-centered. So to fast from ourselves, we need to feast on Christ. We must feast on Christ if we're going to walk in humility. So how do we do that? Well, we have to focus our hearts and minds on his humility. Did you know Jesus was humble? 
He didn't need to be. He's God himself, but he was humble. Philippians 2 talks about it. It says, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but what he did what? He made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant. He humbled himself. So when we focus our hearts and minds on the one who left heaven and became nothing so that we could become everything, we begin to walk in humility. We have to delight ourselves in the Christian gospel. The Christian gospel is the good news that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me, yet I am so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. And when we engage in the Christian gospel, when we embrace it and we take it in, this feasting gives life to our fasting. It kicks the platform out from under our feet, as it were. So there's no more swagger or superiority. There's no more posturing or powering up. I can stop thinking less of myself because in him I have everything. So that's the second thing. Here's the last one. The last one is this, is to accept correction. Here's the ultimate test to determine if somebody's a wise person or a foolish person. You want a litmus test? Here's what it is. Lovingly correct them or confront them and see what their response is. It's the test. It's the test for other people, but it's also the test for yourself. If they react, if they lash out, if they refuse to listen, right, then likely they're walking the road of folly. But if they're willing to listen, if they thoughtfully considered what you have to say, they don't have to accept what you have to say, but they're willing to consider it and listen to it because you might be wrong in your confrontation, right? But if they're willing to listen to it, they are among the wise. Here's what Proverbs 90 to 9 says. It says, don't reprove a scoffer or he'll hate you. Okay, here's that warning again. Warning, warning. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. The fool will not listen to rebuke. The fool is unwilling to be corrected. But a wise man, if you correct them, will love you. They will say, thank you for telling me this. And a wise man will take what you say and they will learn from it. So consider this. The degree to which you have anger when somebody corrects you is the degree to which pride and folly are shaping your life. And the degree to which you graciously receive correction is the uh, degree to which wisdom is shaping your life. What is shaping your life? Is it wisdom or is it folly? Why, you know, why wouldn't we take loving, life-giving advice when somebody gives it to us? Because it's ultimately, it's for your good. You're going to become a better person when you take it in. Why would we deny when somebody corrects us or when somebody reproves us? So Proverbs 12 verse 9 says this. I, I love this. This is the final verdict. Here it is. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. <laughs> Isn't that great? Proverbs is just so blunt sometimes, but it's so right. Like, it's so true. If you won't take advice, it's saying you're really, really dumb because it's good for you. The wise person has what's called a teachable heart. The wise person accepts their limitations. The, the wise person admits, you know, I may not be right. I don't, I don't have all the answers. I could be wrong. And I'm willing to learn. I'm willing to grow. And I realize that I want to become a better person. The only way to become a better person is to be teachable, is to be willing to let people teach me and come alongside of me and to find the wise people and kind of come up alongside of them and say, what can I learn from these wise people in my life? So the question I think all of us have to face is, do you have a teachable heart at the end of the day? I'm having trouble. 
my, my screen here. Oh. oh, my computer doesn't have a teachable heart. That's okay. Because I'm on my last thought. But the thing of it is, you're not going to be able to receive correction unless you go through the first two things. See, the more you, you have a fear of the Lord, the more secure you are within yourself. And the more that you are willing to walk in humility with other people because you're feasting on Christ, the more secure you are. And the more secure you are, the more willing you are to receive instruction from other people. And so Crosspoint, my prayer and my hope for us as a people, as a community, as we do life together, as we uh, live out this Christian gospel together in community, is that we'll all have teachable hearts is that we'll have a willingness to learn from each other. And we'll have a willingness to, to grow and, and to be corrected sometimes when that's necessary. And I, I'll be honest, I want that in my life. I want to be a teachable and correctable person. Even though that I'm the primary teacher at Crosspoint, I still need to have a teachable heart. And the reason why is because Jesus, Jesus was the servant of servants who humbled himself, left everything from heaven, and came to live among us, gave up his life for us as a ransom for many, died, came to life on the third day, and modeled for us the way of service and the way of wisdom. And we follow our, our, our Savior and our Lord in what he's done for us. So may we be a teachable people. May we be a people who walk in humility towards each other. And may we know and understand the fear of the Lord. And I, I encourage us to meditate on this as we step into communion this morning, because that's what we're going to do. We're going to step into a time of communion. Before we do that, let me pray, and I invite you to pray with me. And so, Lord, we are um, this morning thankful for the gift of your Son. We thank you for humbling yourself and modeling for us what that means. God, deliver us from scoffing. Deliver us from folly. Forgive us when that little troll inside of each and every one of us rears its head and comes out from under the bridge. God, we want you to transform that inner troll in all of us to become more and more like Jesus. Would you do that? Would you change us to become more and more like you? Thank you that you are faithful and you'll do it. And I thank you that as we surrender our lives to you, you respond and you bring about transformation in us through your spirit. We surrender ourselves to you fresh this morning. And now, Lord, as we go into communion, we pray that uh, the gospel will become alive in our hearts, that, Jesus, you would go big in our eyes as we remember all that you've done for us. And we pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope it's helped you in your spiritual journey and it's helped you draw closer to God. Let me tell you a little bit about us. Crosspoint gathers as one church on Sundays in Northeast Edmonton. And you can find out our location and more about us by visiting our website, thecrosspointchurch.ca. We also meet throughout the week throughout Edmonton in what we call home groups. These are smaller communities of learning, laughter, community, uh, transformation. We, we think that the journey of faith was never intended to be an independent exercise. It's, it's something that we do together. So please visit our website and find out how you can get connected to a home group near you. If you listen to our podcast regularly, why not make it shareable? You could like us on iTunes or share our podcast with other people. But more importantly, we hope you will get connected with other people and talk about what you've learned. Again, hey, thanks for listening. We pray you'll experience Christ's love in a very real and profound way this week.